You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash GreenFestival. I'm Caroline Hyde at Bloomberg's World Headquarters in New York. And I'm Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg Technology. Twitter's workforce has shrunk just as Elon Musk planned. The problem, more employees are resigning than anticipated. And will FTX investors ever recoup their losses? We have the CEO of Do Not Pay, a company backed by FTX that automates legal issues. Let's talk about, of course, where Elon Musk has been distracted, because there have been so many updates on this day alone about Twitter, Ed, and the latest being an email, apparently, that he sent out to all employees just before 9 a.m. local time and urging employees and engineers there are to fly to San Francisco to be there in person for a meeting at the social media platform's headquarters that very afternoon. Let's break this all down. Brad Stone, I'm pleased to say, head of Bloomberg's global technology coverage. Brad, an extraordinary story that continues to unfold. What did you make of that email alone? I mean, I would say I was surprised, Caroline, but nothing these past few weeks have surprised me. I think the thing that jumps out is the remarkable inconsistency. I mean, wasn't it just yesterday? And again, I've lost all track of time here. <laughs> but just yesterday, Elon closed down Twitter headquarters until the Monday after Thanksgiving. Um, and of course, let go, uh, you know, another another round of employees via his uh, ultimatum to uh, to workers. Now, you know, it, it shouldn't be surprising. He, he, he seems to be operating by the seat of his pants, but closing Twitter offices and then asking employees, the remaining engineers, to come help basically save the code base by coming into the offices is, is quite a turnabout. And we're worried as users about the stability of this platform, but it's also got the attention of regulators and lawmakers, first and foremost here in the US. I would actually say first and foremost in the EU. Mm. Um, Twitter is absolutely on a collision course with European regulators. There's this thing called the Digital Services Act, which is going into effect basically uh, at the beginning of 2023. The lar- they've been talking about it for years. The very large tech platforms have to report their numbers, and if they qualify as, as being large, then they're going to basically have to, you know, make some assurances around um, uh, content moderation and algorithmic transparency. And this is at a point where none of those workers responsible for those areas at Twitter are left. They've all left the company. And so you hear, you know, European regulators regulators saying that they might make Twitter a test case. Uh, Brad, hello. Uh, You wrote a column the other day 
that Elon Musk is trying to pull off a, a sort of Steve Jobs-sized turnaround at Twitter based on all the reporting that I've done, that all the reporters and editors that report into you have done. How's that turnaround going? Uh, I, thanks, Ed. I, I drew the comparison to Jobs returning to Apple in, in the mid-1990s. And there were there are certain similarities. I mean, Jobs um, streamlined the, the company back then uh, to, to a large degree. Um, you, you remember stories about Apple employees walking into an elevator, not being able to describe to their boss what they did and getting fired. I think the difference is Elon's been much more destructive than Jobs was back back in the day. And Jobs was returning to a company he knew intimately well. He was a co-founder of Apple. And Elon's coming to a company where he was a power user but maybe didn't understand or doesn't understand the culture and the infrastructure and the product quite as well. So it's early. And look, I've always said Twitter's the company that can't kill itself. It's just way too addictive and, and effective a product. So I don't. I'm not one of those who thinks Twitter's going away. But the last three weeks, he's taken it in the wrong direction. Well, I wanted to ask you about that. Caroline and I took part in actually a couple of Twitter spaces on Friday, one that we hosted, and then I joined Kurt Wagner's Social Power Hour. And, you know, if anything, you still see people on the platform. One of the issues now is that everyone has a blue tick. And I look on the Bloomberg terminal, much of the news cycle is about the content moderation and authenticity and bot user issue. What is your read on what's going on on that side of the platform? Well, it's interesting because we had this letter from uh, Cory Booker and some other senators today urging the FTC to go kind of take a look at, at Twitter, um, its, its conduct with rolling out the, the Twitter Blue verified platform, which then Elon rescinded and has now talked about um, uh, suspending for a couple more weeks and how much just chaos that unleashed where you had uh, impersonators of President Biden and other world leaders and companies like Eli Lilly and, uh, you know, the all, all the instability there, pr uh, prominent figures um, being basically you know, spoofed on the platform. And look, I mean, it, some of this was predictable, probably eminently so to, to people who have worked at Twitter a long time. But Elon, he's gotten as far as he's gotten by not listening to people, by um, going against the grain and listening to his own intuition. And, you know, for a lot of his career, that's worked out quite well. And with regards to Twitter right now, it hasn't. And I think there's going to be a lot of blowback from the FTC, from the EU, from other regulators as he tries to straighten this out. Interesting that this is such a global story, as you say, the EU regulators looking in. We understand maybe the Spanish government, the German government having to respond to questions as to whether they should keep their Twitter handles on the product at all, Brad. What about the global nature of the owners of this business now? There is still some questions about CFIUS or indeed about some sort of investigation as to whether Qatar, Saudi Arabia, and money should be helping own this business. Right. And, and there was, uh, I think, another letter by Senator Mark Warner from Virginia. Basically, he's, he's the chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee, you know, raising concerns about those outside investors, but also the reliance of, of Elon Musk's other businesses on other countries, uh, for uh, China, for example, and the, and the strength of Tesla in China. And it raises all sorts of concerns, you know, particularly when those countries are also, um, you know, re regulating Twitter, when they have interest in maybe stymieing some free speech on the platform. Elon has put himself in a unique and extraordinarily difficult situation. And I, and I do expect uh, different countries to kind of look at that and interpret it differently. Brad, what are we trying to find out next? What is the kind of big question that hangs over Twitter outside of the regulatory side of things? 
I think right now it's a it's a it's a culture issue. It's it's who's left, um, who's going to rebuild this thing, who's going to keep it operating. I mean, that's really the question that everybody's asking. Well, is Twitter going to be there when we check it in the morning? You know, that's the first question. And then I think the second, as some of these big debt payments come due at the beginning of 2023, you know, what what is uh, what does the business look like right now? You've had so many advertisers leave the platform. Um, Twitter Blue, if it if it shows results, it's not. They're not going to be immediate. So, can he rebuild this as a business again? Can he, you know, turn it around and maybe start to grow it again? Those are the questions that we'll be looking at going into next year. Now, we just want to pivot a little bit with you, Brad. Being, of course, the global head of technology, we can do this because the judge in the Elizabeth Holmes trial at the moment, Judge Davila, is giving a lengthy explanation ahead of sentencing. And we have had some headlines saying there's no question that Ms. Holmes is bright, says the judge. And just now saying Elizabeth Holmes' judge is pointing to the many misrepresentations. Everyone's waiting with bated breath as to what the length of time could be here. What's top of mind for you? Um, well, Caroline, I mean that's a that's a, I guess a, maybe a personal question. Obviously, I'm I'm curious what the the verdict is. I, I would be interested in seeing maybe a little bit of equity um, reflected in the in the decision. What I mean by that is, you know, Elizabeth Holmes was a you know she 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 seemed unique back when this story was breaking a couple of years ago, and since then we've had Adam Newman at WeWork. And now more recently, uh, Samuel Bankman-Fried at FTX. And the size and the scale of the fraud is almost just as jaw-dropping. And I know there are different situations. Mm. Um, uh, and, and, and the health of patients was uh, at play in the Theranos case. But, you know, Adam, Adam Newman starting a new business. And SBF, while he may be arrested, is a free man in the Bahamas. And I guess I would – I'm curious to see, you know, how the, how the legal uh, process plays out with this very prominent female founder vis-a-vis -vis some of these more explicit examples of, of male founders and fraud. Brad, this is probably a difficult question for me to ask you, but what is the health of the founder broadly right now in Silicon Valley, in the world that we cover? You've written a lot about Amazon. Jeff Bezos has kind of taken a step back. Uh, Elizabeth Holmes is a different example of a founder that's moved on. Jack Dorsey is nowhere to be seen at Twitter, for example. Um, there, there don't seem to be as many superstar founders right now out there in the world that you and I operate in. Well, I would say the mystique of the founder is, is cracked, for, for sure, all the examples that you've cited. But it's it's I think it's so strong and it's so foundational to the Silicon Valley myth that I think we'd be making a mistake if we said that the next iconoclastic uh, genius founder who comes along isn't you know isn't going to have as much success with uh, Sand Hill Road and venture capital. I I, I think that. Um, you know, we have all these examples, but you, you play them against the examples of everything Bezos created at Amazon and Steve Jobs, and 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 the the, the mystique is there. It might be cracked, but I don't think the the founder, visionary, genius CEO that that archetype is going anywhere in Silicon Valley. I think it's foundational. Okay, Elizabeth Holmes has been sentenced to 135 months imprisonment for fraud. 135 months is just over 11 years. The defense team had asked for 18 months or at-home imprisonment or, you know, uh, being confined to home uh, instead of being in prison. But this and there's the redhead crossing the Bloomberg terminal, is official now. Elizabeth Holmes sentenced to 135 months for the fraud relating to Theranos, which is just little more than 11 years. Brad, back to you. 
little over 11 years, what sort of signal does that sound? It sounds horrendous to me to feel that I would be incarcerated for that length of time. Yeah, no, uh, uh, 11 years um, for, for a, a, now a disgraced former CEO with, with one kid and another on the way. It's, it's a tragedy like a, a, across the board, and hopefully it does send a signal to other CEOs and, and other venture capitalists. But, you know, Caroline, we're coming, up, we're coming off this major scandal in the crypto world. And, mm-hmm. you know, the lessons were there for the investors who, who, who backed SBF and FTX, and, and they were ignored. So I'd love to say that Silicon Valley has learned its lesson, but I think the history of financial scandal in this country and in the world is that there are always new mistakes to be made despite the hefty sentence that's been leveled here today. All right, Bloomberg's Brad Stone, thank you. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more details from the Elizabeth Holmes sentencing. Coming up, we'll also speak with the new Grinder CEO, George Arison, about everything from his first couple of months in the top role to his big ideas for the popular dating app. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. The sentencing has been read on Elizabeth Holmes, the founder, of course, of Theranos, being sentenced to 135 months for the fraud. That, of course, equates to a little more than 11 years in prison. And we understand that then the judge won't impose a fine, postpones restitution order, and also is getting three years supervised release after prison. All of this with the expectation, we understand, that it's likely to be appealed. But for now, Elizabeth Holmes being sentenced to an enormous more than 11 years prison for fraud, but noting that this was on the lower end of the maximum amount. And we understand that Elizabeth Holmes is is hugging her parents in court after the sentence was imposed. We'll return to that in a moment. But now let's get you some more breaking news of the day. Because Friday was a very big day for Grindr. The dating app specializing in LGBTQ plus communities saw its shares absolutely surge in its trading debut. Yeah, I've seen a few SPAC listings in my time at this company, Caro. This is impressive. Up more than 210%. First day of trading after the D-SPAC from Thursday's close of the pre-SPAC trading. 
Two charts though, that I want to look at really quickly to give some context here. First, look at the DSPAC index on the Bloomberg terminal. This is a basket of 25 companies that have gone before Grindr. And look at that two-year performance. I, I use two-year because two years ago, there was euphoria around companies going public via SPAC. Look at how some of those companies have fared since then. Not so well. The second thing, the number of special purpose acquisition companies that are actually IPOing, in other words, the vehicles themselves that seek to go public and then merge with the company, taking it public via the DSPAC process, has completely dried up. That's where we're at. So why is Grindr different? We'll ask the man behind it, Grindr's CEO, George Arison, of course. Extraordinary day of celebration for you and one where we saw at the NICE the listing and of course uh, performances and a real celebration for what has been a momentous year for LGBTQ people as well. I'm interested in your perspective on well, now as a public company, how it makes you different from a private company? Um, well, public companies, you have to have really good controls, which we're really excited to have. Uh, secondly, we get to report numbers regularly, and I think it'll be awesome to tell the story of how well our business is doing, but also the story of what we do for the community that we mm. serve. Because Grindr is not just a business, it's also a mission, and our employees are really tied to the mission, and our users are really tied to the mission. And then thirdly, you know, Grindr moving forward is going to have a board of nine people um, governing the company, six of which are LGBTQ+. Plus community members, which is completely incredible, right? Like, that's never happened in the history of public companies, and that just makes me so proud that that's the company that we're going to be. George, the, the overwhelming number of investors voted in favor of the reverse merger, not sure how surprising that is. What is it that you think was so convincing? Is it actually Grinder and the opportunity for the business, the addressable market, or are you just another SPAC? Well, Grindr is a really unique company because we are both growing really fast, right, 30-plus percent year-over-year -year growth, while also we are profitable. And our EBITDA number is extremely strong and very, very positive, and we expect that to continue in the years to come because our opportunity for growth is so strong ahead of us. And I think that makes us really unique, right? You showed this back index. Well, you could put up a similar index for high-growth money-losing companies, and they're going to be in a similar situation, right? Those correlate. I think, in general, tech world has had a lot of companies not do well because they're losing money. Grindr is very different because it's making money while growing at a really fast clip. We are very early in our monetization journey. You know, we've only started to really charge for our services in the last three, four years. And there's still a lot of monetization that we can achieve by having people pay for services that they really want, right? So we're building those products for them and then they're monetizing those. And that puts us, I think, in a really pole position to grow our revenue really nicely while do it in a, in a you know, positive, unique economic way. I mean, Grindr's, I mean, it's a pretty amazing thing to say. We have nearly 200 million in revenue as, an, as a guidance point for this year. And we're doing that with 200 people working at Grindr, right? So that, I think, is a, is a pretty awesome story. Talk to us about, you speak very eloquently about your stakeholders in terms of people who work for you and the people that you serve through the app. Now your shareholders. The volatility is there because in large part there's a very small float. Yep. And I'm interested as to whether you want to build that. Do you want to have more liquidity? you want to have more shares outstanding so that we don't get these huge sudden surges in the share price? Yeah, I mean, obviously we want to have a float um, that's much bigger. And we want to spend time with investors telling them our story and having them invest. We've done some of that already. We've been out there talking to large investors that mm. invest in companies like us. And we'll continue to do that. Um, I'm fortunate to have done this once before. I've taken another company public. So um, that's something I enjoy doing. 
and we have a very strong CFO who is very good at this as well. And so we'll be out there telling our story and hopefully, you know, big institutional investors who want to hold stock for a long time will come in and become our shareholders over the months to come. George, I'm really interested about the concept of the app and how you make money in other ways. You yep. know, if you look, for example, at uh, a Bumble and how they moved away from just simply dating, what are the opportunities for you to branch out, monetize new functionality? Totally. So obviously, the majority of what we do today is around dating and relationships. Right? People come to Grindr to either have casual dating or long-term relationships or friendships, and that we know that from all the data that we collect. But we also know that people use Grindr in a lot of other ways. Travel is a very logical example. People People like take me, right? I could be in Grindr, traveling from San Francisco to New York, logging in, talking to people about where, where I should stay, what I should do, what restaurants I should go to, what activities right. are happening. We don't monetize that at all now. We know people use Grindr that way. It's like a very organic thing that happens in the app, but we don't actually monetize that, that feature or that, that set of features. Imagine a world where inside Grindr, we then actually give you a map of the place you're going to and say, hey, here are five hotels that our users really like. Here are the three restaurants that people really want to go to. And that, yeah can be monetized. So that's one of just many kind of product extensions that we are envisioning. Now, we're not going to launch these in 2023. These are all more long-term because there's still so much low-hanging fruit in our core product that we can monetize. But over the long-term, we see a ton of opportunity to kind of grow and really be a brand for the entire community, right? We have this 85% right. brand recognition among our community members, which is frankly incredible and priceless. Well, we need to take advantage of that and really serve them in many other areas besides just the core dating features that Grindr has to do. Okay. Grindr CEO George Harrison, thank you. We've got to run. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Caroline Hyde in New York, along with Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. And we've got to talk about Twitter again because it's closed, its offices, until Monday after Elon Musk gave staff an ultimatum to either commit to working long hours at high intensity or to leave. Sources say many more workers decided, well, to leave than he expected, potentially putting Twitter's operations at risk. A memo seen by Bloomberg also urges staff to refrain from discussing confidential information on social media or elsewhere. Bloomberg's intelligence, Mandeep Singh, is with us, following every nook and cranny of this story, Mandeep. But ultimately, how worried are you about the product? How worried are you about the platform and its ability to continue being as rich as it is for people when there's no one really working there? Uh, look, you make a great point that to keep a service like Twitter up, there is a lot that go behind the scenes in terms of infrastructure and system software. And look, Twitter isn't even deployed on a public cloud that, you know, Amazon or Microsoft is taking care of the infrastructure. Twitter is uh, still a lot of the services deployed on its own private data center. So you need those type of resources. And with this kind of layoffs, when he has already, you know, fired 70 to 75 percent of the staff, you don't know which are the critical people. Maybe he has a good sense, but we don't know it yet. And he's too focused on cost. So uh, I think a combination of, you know, what he wants to do in terms of the blue checks and just get the cost under control to me is just too scary right now and too risky in terms of how he's going about. I love that, Caro. The data-driven Mandeep Singh saying <laughs> Musk is too focused on cost. I love it. But Mandy, my question for you, who or what is Twitter's competitor? 
Well, so that's the saving grace that they have that there isn't, uh, you know, a Twitter-like service out there. And Google probably wished they had something similar to uh, Twitter or, you know, even uh, Meta for that matter. Some people may argue, you know, the creators may go to Instagram. It's just not the same. Twitter is the service for live events. We have a World Cup coming up. And look, people still will engage with Twitter. But the uh, real risk here is the service may go down because we, uh, like, there is no one doing the basic maintenance in terms of taking care of blogs and you know the underlying infrastructure and I just feel like in this case, there is anything that could happen. I mean, we have seen what a lack of governance can do at a company like FTX. You know, the whole thing, uh, we talked about it the whole of this week, and there is no governance. Yeah. There is no one looking at compliance, and that is the risk right now with Twitter. Of course, this is now a private company, so we don't track the stock. But there's a lot of key people who have put a lot of money to work alongside Elon Musk, and there's also a lot of banks holding the debt. How concerned do you think these people are right now? What are the fundamentals even looking like of a business like this? Yes, so what Musk has told us is Twitter was losing $4 million a day. So that basically means that they are losing about, you know, $1.5 billion in revenue. And if you think about, you know, what he's trying to offset the layoffs is really make the Twitter uh, company, you know, break even, uh, you know, in terms of the fundamentals. So that should please the debt holders. But at the same time, it also shows that, you know, Twitter as a company is losing revenue. So in my mind, uh, the fact that, you know, they are focusing that much on costs is a sign that they're already losing revenue. And and I wouldn't be surprised if the revenue is down almost 20 percent, uh, like since Musk took over. All right. Bloomberg Intelligence's Mandeep Singh. Thank you very much. For more on what's next for Twitter, let's bring in Liz Pearl, former head of team community at Instagram and now consults with big tech companies in the creator economy. And Liz, welcome to the show. I want to ask you a similar thing to what I asked Mandeep. Where does Twitter sit within the ecosystem of social media platforms? What is it that Twitter does and who does it appeal to? Well, um, you know, as you mentioned, I am someone who specializes in how young people and young communities uh, use technology in the internet, right? And specifically how their behavior today influences and shapes what technology is going to look like. So um, when I hear, you know, Elon sharing his vision in pieces over the past week, and part of that is potentially pay, you know, focusing on monetization above all else and putting a paywall around Twitter. Um, that, of course, makes my brain go, oh, that's a kiss of death for teens, right? Um, right. And one of the problems they want is that they're not a teen platform, right? Like, the universal truth about social media is that adults will literally always get on the platforms that teens congregate to, and teens will rarely, if ever, grow into the platforms that adults are on. So, like, they have a teen problem as it is, even if it is, like, incredibly culturally relevant as a platform in a way that there are no competitors, right? Like, teens are getting information from Twitter disseminated across the platforms they do use and maybe, like, ways they may not even even realize. So cultural relevance, relevance, really important. User base in trouble. <laughs> I guess, you know, what I've learned in recent weeks with this growth story that Musk is talking about, more users coming to the platform is the role of yeah. the content creator, right? You know, on Instagram, TikTok, Caroline knows all about this. That platform is about the people that use it. Is Twitter about the content creators? Is it about the people using the platform? Or is it about, you mean, the alternative being like more about it inform dispensing information in real time about news? Is that the alternative? 
Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it is it, it, it is and can be a content creation platform. You know, on a, on a high level, when we're talking about competition, like something that I'm seeing happen that I'm honestly, like, kind of excited about is we see all these really big social companies that are we've framed as competitors to each other. So we have Twitter, Facebook, Snapchat, TikTok. Um, and we're seeing, like, finally... Um, this disseminate this uh, uh, sort of um, melting of them, like looking at them all, like they are all for everybody, doing everything, um, mm-hmm. all of the time, right? Not finally, we're realizing, and we're seeing this like movement towards apps like Discord and things that we're realizing not every platform can be for everybody all the time. Right, we're seeing these mass layoffs, all these big bets not playing out, and I think it would be nice to see a future where um, the platforms that survive, and this is a likely future, are the ones that actually like define their audience and focus on them really clearly. And I think Twitter has got a leg up in that sense because it's like it's one of the platforms where it's extremely clear yeah. who uses Twitter, right? Who gets value from Twitter? And there are, you know, young active. We're talking about young people, activists, right? Like there are there are very specific communities for whom that actually make Twitter really, really culturally relevant. Um, and- if you if you were advising now Elon Musk on how to make it more for content creators, how to now lean in to making really unique storytelling ways in which I'm looking at my own Twitter feed right now and the amount of people who are giving me their Instagram links, their TikTok links because they're worried as to where next they're going to be and be able to have these conversations in case the platform doesn't survive. But if it does and if we manage to see it innovate do you want to see a return to Periscope? Do you want to see more video products? What do you want to do as someone who advises companies on attracting a teen community on providing content? Yeah, I mean, it's, I'd say, like, every platform, the future is multi-format, right? Like, we, they're used to, we kind of sometimes treat social media like it's, you know, 2013, where each platform has a thing they're good at. So, like, Instagram's images, YouTube's video, Twitter's text, and, you know, you're supposed to do a separate thing on each platform, but the reality is every person's doing everything, and particularly if you're a content creator, right? Mm. You're expected to do every format on every platform, so it's, um, that's a lot, and I do think, like, Twitter is behind in terms of the amount, like the types of formats you can use. If you want to go on and express yourself, and you're part of one of their core communities, right? Like the they, video sucks. It's insane that <laughs> video sucks on the platform. It's crazy, but it does. So being multi-format in like a real way, catching up to everyone in that sense, and then focusing in on the actual communities that, that utilize their product um, that are already their foundational communities would be my suggestion. Liz, I'm just going to follow up in terms of your moderation focus as well, because, of course, we're hearing from Europe that they are worried about moderation in particular. They've got a different type of consideration there in terms of actual real rules, real policy, real fines for you if you don't live up to the content moderation that they want to see, particularly against hate speech. But how much is that something that you have to be thinking about when you're advising these companies and how much worry and reticence there is of companies at the moment aligning themselves with come with social media platforms that don't seem to care about it enough? Right. I mean, I think, first of all, um, Yoel Roth, who is form- Twitter's former head of safety, wrote an op-ed for New York Times about content moderation in Twitter. That's like the must-read today. Um, that talks a lot about the fact that like outside forces really do in- influence and enforce in many ways, like moderation on any platform, you know, including, for example, the App Store. But yeah, different countries have different child safety laws, for example. 
Um, so it is something you have to keep in mind. And I, when I see news like, you know, the hundreds or thousands of contractors being let go from a big social media company, you always, I will always assume it's content moderation because right now every company outsources that. Um, and I think that, you know, these are vitally important jobs and I can't help but wonder how much safer and cleaner for advertisers these platforms would be if they were able to keep these teams in house as they scale. Right. And, and then also like, or, you know, be, be able to treat, treat them regionally and globally. Um, so that's like, a, a, that's something I think about a lot and right. it's too bad that it's right now they these teams are treated a little bit like they're expendable. Mm. Yeah. I think a lot more to learn on the fallout there. Former head of teen community at Instagram, Liz Pearl. Thank you. Coming up, can FTX investors get their money back? We'll chat with the CEO of do not pay. Who's trying to do just that. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Minneapolis Federal Reserve Bank President Neil Kashkari is slamming the concept of cryptocurrencies. He says the whole idea of cryptocurrency is, quote, nonsense after the implosion of FTX Group revealed the industry's shortcomings. While many officials have warned about crypto risks and the need for regulation, Kashkari's comment represents one of the most, let's say, forceful denunciations by a Fed policymaker. For more on the crypto fallout, let's bring in Do Not Pay CEO Joshua Browder. His company aims to recoup losses similar to what has now happened with FTX investors, as well as automate legal issues. FTX is actually one of your backers, right? So let's put that out on the table. Uh, you are working, though, to get investors' money back. Josh, this is complicated. Walk us through it. Yeah, so uh, they invested in us about a year ago. And um, from a practical standpoint, it was a very small investment. But it's uh, culturally, it goes against everything we believe in. And so we're working hard to help people get money back from FTX. The most important thing to know is there's this regulation. It's called Regulation E. And it means that if you've uh, deposited money in FTX through ACH Direct Deposit, you can actually get it back. 
if you've deposited within the last 60 days. Um, there's no discretion that the banks or anyone has. You can tell your bank, I want to reverse the deposit, and then they can reverse it. And then what happens is FTX's payment processor is on the hook for refunding the money to you. And so we've been automating a lot of these sorts of refunds. One other type of refund you can do is if you loaded up your FTX balance with a credit or debit card, you can also dispute the payment under something called the Fair Credit Billing Act. And it's the least we can do, given that he was actually a small investor in our company. Talk to us about that experience, Josh, about getting funding. Did anything make you think it was amiss? There were many, many things. Uh, there was a bait and switch, I, I felt like. Um, I had a friend uh, introduce us, and, and they said, FTX, invent uh, FTX Ventures would love to invest a small check in your round. And it turned out that when the documents were being circulated, they changed the name of the entity to the Alameda Research. And I didn't even know what that was at the time, but I thought it was very shady that it wasn't actually FTX investing when it was presented to us that they would be the ones investing. On top of that, I told FTX, I think crypto is a scam. Our company helps consumers fight other companies like Celsius. There's no value to crypto. And they said, no problem. We would still love to invest. So Josh, the fact Josh, that it Josh, goes Josh. against... Sorry, you, you told say that FTX that You told FTX that crypto is a scam, but you still took money from them for your business. Let's be clear about that. Yeah, uh, I thought they could give us expertise on going after other crypto exchanges. I think the last time we spoke, um, we were going after Celsius, and they're very helpful there. And no one could have imagined that six months to a year later, they would be doing all of this stuff. Um, no one could have predicted it. And um, I, I thought FTX was one of the good ones, and I was wrong. That's absolutely extraordinary. And to that end, are you... Are you getting involved in any sort of class action? Are you looking at any form of legal action yourself? Or is this more a focus on how your business can help others right now? We're just trying to help others. There are amazing lawyers working on the consumer side with class actions. There's a firm called Ent Entwistle and Capucci. They were big in the Madoff class class action and MF Global class action. And so we're sending people their way. We're working in small claims court. One area that hasn't been explored enough is going after the YouTubers. Um, there are a lot of people in the FTX orbit who are pushing consumers to sign up, saying, this thing is totally safe, use my referral code. And I think regulators and courts need to look into the personal finance YouTubers who ordinary people trusted with their life savings. Josh, I want to ask you about your users and customers. I appreciate there may be an, an element of confidentiality or privacy, but can you give us yeah. any sense of how much money people are trying to claim back and win back? You know, what are the losses that people in the real world have suffered? On, the, on a grand scale, I think it's publicly reported to be over 10 billion, but on our end, We've helped, uh, we have millions uh, being processed, being refunded through the banks. So if you've lost money in FTX, I can't stress this enough, if you direct deposited in the last 60 days, you should phone up your bank and say, um, under um, Section E um, of the CFPB regulations, I want a refund. And your bank can't say no. Um, and they don't want to tell you about this, but, mm. but you should definitely uh, go that route if it's an option for you. Josh, what what did you learn actually from 
FTX about the ability to claw back money from other Celsius and the like, many of which, you know, they themselves were acting as a white knight involved in. Was it and is it easy, transparent to be able to do such? It's really not. Um, the, the system is built on so much trust that consumers and regulators could never have imagined that all the money would never be there. And so um, in a lot of these cases, when a company declares bankruptcy, everything gets frozen, as is the case with FTX and Celsius. But there are other things you can do, like these workarounds with reversing the funds, contacting your credit card company, taking third parties to small claims court who aren't being properly held responsible. Hey, Josh, if you raise money again from an outside investor, what lessons have you learned from your involvement with FTX? I think our name and our brand is extremely important, and we should be very careful to make sure that anyone, even if they're putting in a small check um, and they have no influence, um, we should make sure that uh, everything is like squeaky clean. Um, I thought that that was the case with FTX. There were investors in Sequoia, all of Silicon Valley, but uh, in reality, uh, all of these crypto companies had shaky foundations. Mm. Well, looking at the other backers that you have, of course, the Andreessen's, the Founders Fund, the Luxes, I mean, you've taken money from standout Silicon Valley players and it's notable of the lessons now learned, but we really thank you for your clarity and, and for really being so true to yourself with us. We appreciate it. Do not pay, thank CEO you. Josh Browder. Stay well. So you're coming to the World Cup this November or December. You know Qatar is a conservative country, but you want to enjoy the sun and sand. What do you wear? The answer is complicated. Qatari men and women mostly wear traditional dress while out and about. Long white phobes for men with a kotra on their heads. Women wear black robes called vayas with hijabs to cover their hair. Oh, and their makeup is typically flawless. But unless you wear this on a day-to-day -day basis, stick to your normal wardrobe with a few rules. In public places like malls and parks, both women and men are obliged to cover everything from their shoulders to their knees. It's particularly strict with women, but enforcement's not uniform. However, you can be and people are kicked out of public places if they don't comply. There are two main places where this rule doesn't apply. One, the Pearl, a large residential development on artificial islands that stretches out into the Persian Gulf. It's home to lots of the white-collar residents from Western countries, and also luxury hotels around the country. In both places, you'll see mini skirts and tank tops. Bikinis are standard wear at the pool. It's not clear how strictly these rules are going to be enforced when more than a million fans descend on the country before the World Cup. But this is the way people dress in Qatar. And we thank Simone Foxman for that report. And meanwhile, Ed, Qatari officials, did you see that? It is all over social media because they're set to ban the sale of alcohol within the World Cup stadiums. It's a dramatic reversal for an earlier decision, of course, that Anheuser-Busch InBev was going to be selling Budweiser beer there. Bloomberg's learning that, well, it's likely going to result in moving concession stands serving the booze further away from the stadiums. And those that have shelled out thousands of dollars of private hospitality suites, apparently they're unaffected, we understand. Look, the World Cup being hold, held in Qatar has been controversial. I look across Instagram, I look across Twitter. You've got to lean in on the positive. Yeah. And football or soccer, wherever you are in the world, it brings the world together. 
Beer is a key part of football culture in Europe, for example, mm. not everywhere. But how amazing is it that the whole world is talking about football or soccer right now? So, key game for you. What is it? We've obviously got the kickoff on Sunday. What is it? Ecuador versus Qatar. But right. then, when, when are we up next, Ed? And who are you yeah, supporting? Well, Wales as my followers England? know, I'm a proud Welshman, <laughs> Demline Cymru. I cannot wait for Wales USA on Monday. And I hope, honestly, that Wales beat England the day after Thanksgiving. I mean, there's a song. Who is it? Is it Nicki Minaj performing it? The official anthem? Yeah. Yeah. It's quite... Uh, I don't... I'd be interested. She's going to have to be by some luxury hotels, by some... Not as good as Shakira's. Not as good as Shakira's. No way. Well, it's football, we hope, is coming home. To whomever ends up winning it, I'm pretty sure we'll be supporting England and Wales. But support us next week. We've got Kraken's chief legal officer joining the show. This is Bloomberg. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.